Hello, and welcome to episode 70 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Bobonis, and joining me today is Peter Jennings, PSM, Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and Knight of the French National Order of the Legion of Honor. We will be talking to Peter about what else? Australia's new nuclear submarines. Peter Jennings, how are you? Salvatore, I'm well. Thanks for having me on the program. Thanks for joining us. On September 18th, France recalled its ambassador, Jean-Pierre Thibault, uh, from Canberra for consultations. Did it also revoke your membership in the Legion of Honor? Well, I've been wondering if I'd get a letter from the Elysee Palace. Uh, so it hasn't happened yet, and um, I, I, I don't think it will. Um, you know, the truth of the matter is we didn't handle uh, the, the end of that relationship well over the, uh, the French submarine. Uh, but on the other hand, um, they were out of contract and they didn't win a contract to take the program to the next stage. So uh, these things happen uh, in defence procurements. I, I can appreciate their unhappiness. But really, the more important thing here is how do we get that bilateral relationship back on track? Uh, because uh, it's in the interests of both countries that we have a good relationship. That'll take some time, but I, I think once uh, we let the dust settle, what, what we'll have uh, is, a, is a reasonable Australia-French relationship and, and um, uh, we'll, we'll have moved on to what I think for us is an essential thing to do, which was to look at nuclear propulsion for, for our submarines. Well, I'm sure they uh, regret their uh, $90 billion. I'd love to have your $90 billion too. Uh, Peter, but I'm sure Gallic uh, petulance aside, I'm sure that will... Um, eventually heal itself. Tell us about the AUKUS partnership. Is it a, I mean, we hear the word partnership. Is that an alliance? I mean, what is AUKUS? Well, the first thing it is, is, is a massive surprise. Uh, I've, I've been working in this town for about 30 years, Salvatore, and I've not seen a secret so well kept as the one which was landed on our laps about uh, 10 days ago or so now. Uh, it's clearly the result of about six months' worth of discussion between uh, the US, the UK and Australia. And now we know why back in June this year in Cornwall at the G7 meeting, we had that sort of mysterious story of um, um, Boris Johnson sort of crashing what was to be a bilateral meeting between Scott Morrison uh, and Joe Biden. Uh, I, I'd say that that was the sort of final sealing of the deal for, for AUKUS. But as you say, what is it? It's um, I think at this stage it's it's a, an agreement between three heads of government. It's not a formal treaty relationship, and I don't think it ever will be because for that to happen, it would have to go through the U.S. Congress. Um, not, I'm unsure that it would actually get that, uh, particularly perhaps after the the midterms. Uh, so I think we're going to have an informal um, uh, relationship, an informal understanding, but no less powerful because of that. Uh, because really what we have here is a commitment to much more closely share the science, the technology, the defence industrial capability across the three countries. Um, and that's a really significant development. Now, the US is already a treaty ally of Australia and a treaty ally of the UK. So uh, you mentioned this, this AUKUS will not be a formal alliance, but is there any need for it to be an alliance? I mean, even if it were, what would it add? I think between these three countries uh, in particular, it, it isn't necessary. Um, we are going to certainly have to have uh, 
formal agreements around technology sharing, for example, relating to nuclear propulsion. There's, there's no way that could happen without there being very precise expectations set and promises made about how we will handle that technology. Um, I, I think given the, the history of the three countries, the longevity of our own uh, defence relationships, which um, you know at, at the least can be traced back to the First World War, the, the, the requirement for an underpinning treaty for, for AUKUS is not significant. Um, and of course, as you, as you say, we, there are formal treaty relationships between us and, and the United States and the UK and the United States. And I think that's sort of sufficient to really cover that, that spectrum. Uh, there was, by the way, no treaty relationship between us and the French. Um, you know, there, was, there was a massive series of contracts for the original design of the submarine. But um, I, I think between uh, the UK, the US and Australia, the depth of understanding is such, the trust level is such that AUKUS doesn't need to be formalised, although certain aspects of cooperation that will now happen under AUKUS, they, they will definitely be formalised. What are we talking about with cooperation? Because, you know, in most of the, our minds, AUKUS is a submarine procurement deal. Um, what else is there? There's a lot. Uh, and really, it, it was only just because that the submarine uh, propulsion element was so significant that the rest kind of got lost in the it, it, under the, the under the main headlines, uh, there is, for example, an agreement that we will now access cruise missiles, uh, which are missiles that have a, a, a radius, a, a, a range of uh, well over fifteen hundred kilometres. Australia's never had that type of capability before. That would be big news in its own right. There's agreements to do joint work in developing further military technology, including hypersonics very fast um, uh, missile systems, uh, quantum uh, technology, quantum computing technology, and artificial intelligence. And the way I think of it is we're really getting a pooling here of the science and technology know-how of the three countries. Yes, we have shared this type of stuff in the past, but typically they've also been stovepiped a little bit because we're talking about countries protecting some of their most important intellectual property uh, I think the view is, particularly given the, the threats that we face, that a pooling of those capabilities across the three countries is going to yield better outcomes for all three of us. And in fact, I imagine some of them will move um, faster, Salvatore, than the uh, nuclear propulsion. You know, that, that's at least a, a 15-year project. In the case of hypersonics, um, I think we could probably be thinking about a, a fielding hypersonic weapons within um, sort of five five years or so. Now, Peter, uh, On Liberty is a live show. We run it as a live show in part because our member base is often much more knowledgeable than I am. And it's an opportunity for our members to get in their own questions to our guests. So I want to say a quick hello to uh, Anthony, Christopher, Chris, to uh, John. We already have questions pouring in. I'll just start off with one from John. It's the most basic of all questions. Does Australia even need submarines, any submarines, nuclear or conventional at all? I think we do. I, I, I think there is some, uh, some attributes that submarines uniquely offer that can't be found through other areas of military technology. And really they are stealth, uh, the ability to deploy a submarine into an area where, some, where a potential enemy will have no, no idea of its location. 
you know, that, that has been the sort of the principal strategic value of submarines going back for well over a century. If you combine that with uh, nuclear propulsion, what you then get from that is range, uh, because effectively the energy of a, a, a nuclear reactor in a submarine is limitless. So the only thing that limits its range is the ability to keep your crew sane and to keep them fed. Uh, uh, nuclear boats could be at sea underwater for, for months undetected. So range, stealth, uh, the other thing that nuclear power does is provide you with unlimited speed to get to an area where you want to get and to get away from an area when you need to do so. All, all of these things, I think, are powerful military attributes. And short of nuclear weapons, which Australia does not want and our government has, says it has absolutely no interest in, uh, probably the next most useful strategic deterrent you could think of is to have a fleet of those sorts of submarines with the capacity to move Australia's military forces far, far forward uh, in a way that uh, a potential enemy would simply not know about. So, yes, in my view, submarines continue to have significant military use, and I think they will do for, for uh, some decades to come. Now, Chris is curious if you have any information or insights into just how much it will cost Australia to break the deal uh, with the French? I don't. Um, and I guess this is something which potentially is going to, uh, you know, may even end up in some sort of legal action. So probably dangerous to speculate on. Uh, where, where the government had got to with this was that there was a natural break point in between contracts. So a significant amount of uh, development work had been done. We had, have still well over 100 people in Cherbourg, Australians in Cherbourg, learning the technology uh, of uh, French nuclear submarines construction. And we'd spent quite a few hundred million dollars to, to get to that point. There was a fresh contract which was about to be signed, uh, which had been pretty hard to negotiate, that had um, involved, um, would, would take us from the design stage pretty much through to the start of construction. And so if our government was ever going to walk from the deal, that was the moment for that to happen. The contract did not get signed. So the, the Commonwealth is not in contract to uh, Naval Group Australia right now, but there nevertheless will be some, some pretty difficult unpicking. Uh, the French make the observation that they have already shared some significant intellectual property with us in an area which they regard as you know, very important and secret to their own defence capabilities. So this is going to cost us, um, I will say, in the, in the hundreds of millions of dollars. But just recall, you're talking about a defence budget of about $37 billion a year. So, you know, it's all got to be kept in, in proportion. Right. Now, we're, we've been very focused on the AUKUS announcement, and the Australian government seems to have promoted that focus. But uh, this came just before the visit of... Uh, Maurice Payne and Peter Dutton to Washington for the OSMIN meetings. Can you explain to us what's, what, what is OSMIN and what's been happening in Washington this past week? So OSMIN is the annual uh, Australia-US ministerial consultations, which was the vehicle that ultimately replaced what used to be a, um, a triangular meeting between Australia and New Zealand and the United States until New Zealand drifted off on its anti-nuclear fantasies in the, in the mid-1980s. So Osman has been around since then um, as an annual meeting of the Australian Defence and Foreign Minister, 
and the US Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense, which um, th there'd been a couple of years where they, where they didn't happen, but they've been very regular in the last 20, 20 years or so. And they are a vehicle for forward planning in terms of our broad cooperation agenda with the United States, but particularly so in defense and intelligence. Um, and again, um, Osman this year probably um, definitely um, overshone a little bit by the announcement of AUKUS, but the Osman meeting itself um, also announced a raft of further uh, military cooperation between Australia and the United States, which is going to mean more US Marines coming to the top end. Uh, it's going to mean uh, a larger, more frequent, uh, more varied presence of American, uh, of US Air Force. Uh, aircraft uh, operating in the in the top end of the country. Um, I think for the first time we're going to see a significant US Army presence here as opposed to the Marine Corps um, and quite likely American uh, naval ships operating out of our major naval bases on both the east and the west coast. So a, a, a substantial uh, step up of bilateral cooperation, um, a lot of which is really about enabling the US to sustain its military presence in the Indo-Pacific region more effectively uh, and to also make it possible to disperse what it has at the moment, which is a large number of uh, personnel and forces in a small number of bases, mostly in Japan, uh, South Korea and in Guam. Uh, so this, this sort of suits American strategy and it certainly suits Australian strategy because uh, you know the, the more we can sustain that American presence, uh, the, the better it is for our own defence capability and the more confidence it lends to other countries in Southeast Asia, for example, that there are alternatives for them other than simply subordinating themselves to China, which, of course, is the other great power really seeking to try and supplant the US uh, in this part of the world. So Osman was significant. Um, only in this year could it really have been outshone by AUKUS, sorry, but, uh, but that is what happened in DC uh, last, last week. Well, another thing being eclipsed last week, I think was the quad. Uh, speaking of rising superpowers, Narendra Modi is in uh, the United States, been talking to, uh, I know he's been talking to Kamala Harris. I believe he's probably also had a meeting with Joe Biden. <laughs> what does the AUKUS partnerships, I don't wanna trip over our terms, imply for the future of the quad? Well, there's a, there's a sort of an alphabet soup of these um, acronyms now, now floating around. I, I think the last time we saw such active alliance building uh, Salvatore was probably at the end of the Second World War and into the early 50s, where you know, the, sort of the post-war post laydown of global security was, was designed. That's where we get NATO from. It's where we get ANZUS and US-Japan Treaty, for example. Now we have um, a, 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 a string of new acronyms entering the vocabulary. AUKUS we've talked about, but there's also this thing called the Quad, which brings together Australia, Japan, India, and the US. Sort of floated about a decade ago, uh, but at that stage kicked into touch by uh, Australia out of a concern not to be seen to be um, annoying uh, China. I think we're now at a point where we can take China's annoyance as a given. Uh, and what's happened with the Quad is that it's kind of lifted itself out of the bureaucratic levels. 
to become something that the president and the three prime ministers of these four countries are directly interested in. Um, and I, I think it's actually one of the about the only benefit that I can think of of the of the pandemic was that it enabled um, uh, uh, the the three prime ministers and the president to meet virtually, uh, which they did in March this year. Um, they agreed quite an ambitious um, agenda focused on vaccine delivery, supply chain security. So, in other words, a, a bunch of non-military but important. Uh, areas to cover nevertheless. And then we have uh, last week, as you say, the quite remarkable spectacle of seeing these four leaders gathering uh, in, in Washington, DC. So I, I think this is going to give the quad momentum. I think it's here to stay. I think the fact that China's been a little quiet about it is interesting because usually China goes quiet when they're not entirely sure how they should be responding to these sorts of developments. And um, although Scott Morrison won't, won't actually say it, it is, of course, all about China. Uh, but the fact that we've got, you know, four of the most consequential democracies of the Indo-Pacific working together at head of government level, yeah, you know, that's, that's important. Uh, and I think we're going to hear a lot more from, from the Quad in future. Well, I, I want to ask you about that because Joe Biden seems to want the Quad to be mainly about climate and coronavirus. Meanwhile, AUKUS is about nuclear-powered submarines and cruise missiles and hypersonic missiles. Um, do, is this a shift away from the Trump administration interest in closer security ties with India towards a Biden administration interest in simply having a more civil relationship? No, it's a good, it's a good question. But I, I think what uh, is happening with um, the quad in particular is that they, they want to put this, the, the spin on a positive agenda so that it's not going to be just about, oh, we're here because we're worried about China, um, although that's undoubtedly true. Um, but they also want to be saying to um, uh, other countries in the Indo-Pacific region, we're showing you that there are, there are different choices that you can make about how you organise your affairs that don't require you to be subordinating your interests to Beijing. Um, and so, you know, for example, the emphasis on foreign investment, I think, is an important thing, uh, particularly for, for countries of Southeast Asia to, to benefit from. Uh, uh, AUKUS is probably doing um, the harder yards around military technology. Um, I think in, if you looked at the quad and you took India out of it for the moment, the, the truth of the matter is that India is probably the, the most reluctant, most cautious of the Quad countries to, to engage. Remember, it, it has you know, a long history of non-alignment non and that still has deep roots inside the uh, foreign affairs establishment. But with Australia, Japan and the United States, you've got a very effective trilateral grouping, which has been working incredibly closely and getting much closer over the last 10 or 15 years which is going to be the engine of military cooperation in the Quad. And I think the extent to which we can bring India along with us, that's good, uh, because we all feel that, you know, India needs to play a bigger role and, uh, and needs to be sort of inducted into um, thinking about its interests beyond the subcontinent. Uh, so, so I think that will be useful. Uh, but for the moment, um, I th an arrangement, I think, which has the Quad looking at uh, less of a an emphasis on military cooperation, although there is some of it, and more about supply chains and viruses and climate and that sort of thing. I think that's useful. And then AUKUS is going to be the bad cop on the block. Uh, 
that's just reminding everybody that military power has a real purpose. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's the right division of responsibility, it, it seems to me. Now, we have an exceptionally active chat today. Let me say some quick hellos to Mei-Ping, Tenzin, Michael, David, Bob, <laughs> we, uh, ZXCYBNM. We have everyone in the chat today. Uh, I'm not going to be able to get to everybody's questions, but Peter, I will ask you for some quick answers. Michael asks about uh, to what extent will nuclear-powered submarines negate the need for a regional bomber? And he cites the retirement of the F-111s. What we need in, in all of this military technology is increased range and nuclear submarines give us, us increased range, although not necessarily speed. Um, it might, it probably won't surprise you, uh, Salvatore, to know that I'm, I'm a fan of a bomber idea as well. Uh, the B-1B, immensely expensive aircraft, but that would transform what Australia could do with its air capability. Um, I, I think having cracked the code on nuclear propulsion, it may well be possible for us to now start thinking about a longer range uh, bomber type aircraft uh, because its absence with uh, the retirement of the F-111s has been frankly sorely missed. Uh, the, also, uh, I just briefly mentioned um, uh, cruise missiles. Uh, you, you know, that is something which is going to give us a significant range too. So there, there is a partial compensation, but not complete. Uh, for not having that long-range bomber aircraft. Okay. Christopher asks, might Japan be forced into nuclear deterrence? And whether that means a, a nuclear weapon or nuclear-powered ships as part of its defence stance? I think the hope is that it won't have to be, but really the governing factor there is the, is the believability of um, uh, America's continued engagement in the security of the Asian region. If, if America was genuinely to go isolationist, I, I think it would put significant pressure on Tokyo to, to think about nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, there is this thing called nuclear latency, which is how far away you are from, from a standing start, uh, giving yourself the ability to produce nuclear weapons. And the truth of the matter is, is that Japan's not that far down the track if it really felt it had to. But for the security of the region, um, you know, my view has always been that it's best for the allies to sort of subcontract that to the United States and, and to strengthen the idea of extended nuclear deterrence, which has always been part of the American uh, bargain for its alliance relationships in, in the region. Well, on that note, David asks, will these nuclear powered submarines have the capability to launch nuclear armed uh, missiles? And will their very existence increase the probability or the possibility of Australia eventually joining the nuclear weapons club in the future? Look, I think capability is probably true. Uh, I mean, it, it used to be the case that uh, back in the, the dark days of the Cold War that uh, the US, for example, had a nuclear armed torpedo. Uh, well, you can certainly fire torpedoes out of these submarines. Uh, it will have a vertical launch system with the capacity to launch a cruise missile, uh, and you could sort. And you know, it is possible for cruise missiles to be nuclear armed. So, theoretically, yes, uh, the submarine could play that role, as could pretty almost any aircraft in the Australian Air Force today. Um, you know, the government's position remains that it has no interest in developing an onshore nuclear industry, and it has absolutely no interest in going down the track of developing nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, I guess uh, uh, for as long as the alliance relationship with the US remains strong and credible, 
no Australian government should want to have that interest as far as nuclear weapons are concerned. So I, I don't think it's meaningfully uh, in prospect yet. But, you know, I say yet because it will all be always be driven by our strategic outlook. And depending on how grim things could get in the region, well, that might lead to a rethink. But at the moment, that's certainly not on anyone's agenda. Now, I'm sorry to rush you, but we're, we've had more questions than ever before, an unprecedented number of questions, and we're rapidly running out of time. Um, Anthony and Mei Ping both want to know about Southeast Asian countries' reaction to AUKUS, in particular, Indonesia's. Well, Indonesia made some comments to the effect that they didn't want to see an arms race develop as a result of this. Um, and my view on that is too late, Indonesia. This, this has been galloping for a long time now. And Australia's not been driving it. It's been driven by uh, uh, China and, and its massive military expansion over the last 20 years. Um, I thought actually the Indonesian response was fairly muted. Uh, I, I expected them not to sound particularly warm. But they weren't that negative about it either. And really what I think that tells us is that Indonesia is quite happy for Australia to be playing this role, for Australia to be spending its budget on these things, um, because in fact, it, it does help to um, uh, provide a sense of security inside Southeast Asia as well. Yeah. Christopher asks, will China, or is it possible that China will move from a relatively low risk but opportunistic strategy to a more high-risk confrontational strategy in its relations with Australia, United States, and Japan? Since um, Xi Jinping has been in power, I think they have been uh, following an increasingly risky strategy uh, internationally. I'm thinking of the annexation of the uh, islands in the South China Sea and the construction of military bases there. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of their um, uh, uh, tearing up of the uh, treaty agreement with the UK over Hong Kong's status uh, and the increasing way that they're threatening uh, Taiwan uh, and Japan. All of those things on the face of it are pretty risky. But the lessons for Xi Jinping so far is that he's been able to get away with them. The, the, the strength of the international response has not been coordinated or, or particularly good. And I think the lesson that Xi Jinping draws from that is uh, risk is paying off. Uh, and I think we will see China seeking to take more risk to promote its strategic interests as it sees them uh, in the future. Bob, Fred and I would all like to ask you about the third leg of AUKUS, uh, that guy with the Queen and uh, James Bond, uh, Boris Harlow. Uh, we'd <laughs> like to ask you about Boris Johnson and Global Britain. Uh, and uh, Bob Fred is particularly interested in the Kanzuk grouping. Could we see a stronger relationship between Australia and the United Kingdom and potentially Canada coming out of AUKUS? Well, I think what Johnson is doing quite sensibly is he's looking for a foreign policy for Britain after Brexit, and that's where global Britain comes in. I'm, I'm not from that uh, Canberra crowd of um, anti-UK folk that just keep, keep sort of sneering at the Anglosphere. I, I think Britain is a country with global interests and some global capacity to pursue them. And the fact that they want to do that in partnership with us is great. On Canada, I would like to see Canada do more as a, as a Pacific country, as an Indo-Pacific country. It just doesn't seem to want to have the interest to go that far at the moment. And I think what that tells you is that fundamentally, Ottawa looks out across the Atlantic and sees NATO as its principal um, area of strategic interest. And for all whatever they may say, 
uh, their, their rhetoric talks up a big uh, Canadian game in the Pacific, but the reality is, is that they're just not that engaged. Um, Ali, Aiden, Donovan, thanks for your questions. We're not going to be able to get to them. Uh, oh, well, Donovan's we are. Uh, Tenzin, thanks for your question. We're not going to be able to get to it. But Donovan asks, picking up on your quote, your comment about New Zealand's, quote, anti-nuclear fantasies, Donovan asks, what's going on with New Zealand? <laughs> Gosh. Um, New Zealand is a country which I think... Uh, 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 its strategic geography enables it to play a very lightly armed uh, role in the world, um, narrowing its interests to the Pacific, South Pacific, which is what it's done, and really relying on Australia to do the heavy lifting as far as security in Asia is concerned. I think under current New Zealand leadership, you've also got a, a government that wants to sort of posture internationally around climate and a range of, of other issues. Um, and which has strategically taken the choice to acquiesce to China as one of as New Zealand's most important markets. So uh, New Zealand can afford to be snippy towards us because they know they'll be able to get away with it, deferential towards China and underinvesting in all other respects in terms of its military security. I can't say that's a combination I'm particularly happy with, but nor, nor is it new, um, Salvador. It's been it's been around for a while, and I think we'll continue to see more of it. Peter Jennings, thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks also to our producer, Nico Malian. Our executive producer is Max Hawk Weaver. The director of CIS is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvador Bogonis. Next week, I'll be talking to the Lowy Institute's Natasha Kassam on Taiwan, or at least on Taiwan relations. Thanks everyone for joining us and you can find us this time next week on On Liberty.